Welcome to Soundscapes, a Terrain.org podcast. In this episode, we'd like to invite you to join an event we co-hosted with Friends of the Columbia Gorge at this year's AWP conference. The topic of the evening was authors, artists, and activists on protecting the landscapes we love. We listened to readings by award-winning poet Jane Hirschfield and Oregon Poet Laureate Kim Stafford, before being joined by Kaya Farrell-Smith and Kevin Gorman for a moderated panel and Q&A session. Terrain.org's Editor-in-Chief Simmons Bunton kicks off the event. Hi there, my name is Simmons Bunton. I am the Editor-in-Chief of Terrain.org. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to Conservation in Verse, a partnership with Friends of the Columbia River Gorge. I want to say a few words about Terrain.org. So Terrain.org is the world's first place-based online journal. Somebody this evening asked, if you guys are everywhere, why are you called Terrain? There is a poem by A.R. Ammons that is called Terrain, and I want to just read a small snippet of that. A.R. Ammons writes, The soul is a region without definite boundaries. It is not certain a prairie can exhaust it or a range enclose it. And, you know, I think that's why we're here this evening, to both discover the soul of place through beautiful and inspiring poetry and to charge or perhaps for many of us recharge our own souls in our ongoing work to protect the landscapes we love. Literature and art and activism are together essential to getting us there. And I think we'll learn a lot more about that this evening. Here's Kim Stafford, a poet who encourages writing as a contribution to community and democracy, sharing some of his work. Every chance I get, any place I fit, in a cleft of grit, in ravine or pit, by ancient wit, my husk I split. I am the seed. I fell to the ground without a sound, by rainfall drowned, by sunlight found, by wonder crowned, through luck profound, I am the seed. After fiery thief, after bout of grief, though life is brief, I sprout relief with tiny leaf beyond belief. I am the seed, I am the seed, small as a bead. Tell me your need, your hunger, I'll feed. Any trouble you're in, I will begin, for I am the seed. Up I rise to seek the prize from all that dies, small and wise before your eyes. I am the seed. Well, to me, the seed is everything. It's human possibility. It's a little raindrop wanting to be a river. It's a little child wanting to grow up and save the world. That sense of growing, of being too small to be noticed, and then taking over. That's what we want to do. Okay, so um, my wife said a very wise thing one day. She said, you know, every day you open the paper and you become aware of something that's been destroyed ruined, killed, made extinct, you know, debased. What if every day you created something to talk back to all that darkness? It wouldn't have to be a big thing to be an important thing. So, you know, I've been thinking the news, the news is important, but it's incomplete. It needs to be made into a poem. 
And so I have this new genre, the nonfiction poem. You know, that starts with something verbatim out of the news, which is often a terrible thing, a terrible thing. And then there's part two. There has to be part two. So this is from a truly terrifying article about how birds die, how birds die. And it has two parts. Wild birds teach us, part one, how birds die. This is the nonfiction part. Get caught by a kitty cat, 2.4 billion. Collateral damage of industry, 700 million. Hit a window, 600 million. Hit a car, 214 million. Get poisoned, 72 million. Hit a power line, 25 million. Get electrocuted, 5 million. Hit a turbine, 234,000. Get blinded by city lights and stray. Search in vain for starlight's guide. Get out of sync with climate change. Depart too early, arrive too late. Land in a lake of arsenic. Get your wings fouled in oil. Eat plastic, eat foil, eat lead shot, eat lead shot, and get a seizure. Eat poisoned insects and carry their doom. Lose your acre of breeding ground, and so circle the parking lot that was a marsh. Circle and circle, cry and cry. Be a snowy owl in the era of Harry Potter, caged by a reader expected to prophesy. Be the wild pet of seven billion mammals with hands. Be the last of your kind, singing and singing. Part two, how wild birds live. Fence wire, a throne for singing and singing. Thorns in the blackberry thicket, jewels of safety. A vacant lot rife with a chance mix. Heaven. Wing bars of crimson, mustard, moss, kinfolk. A fat worm, a ripe seed, a caught beetle. Enough. Twig feet on a twig. After a thousand miles, rest. Bill tucked under the wing, spiral home. Cast off thread and thistle down, snug nest. A silence into which to put a few watery notes. Duet. Breeding season, egg season, fledgling season, destiny. Wings in the mist, riding, gliding, leaving no trace. Harch surge song from inside, beauty's custodian. A short, intense, breathless life. Grace. So your optional homework, record part one, compose part two. Compose part two. So this is a poem I wrote for you this morning in my daily writing practice. I've been listening to this uh, talk by Elizabeth Gilbert, and she talked about how beauty is so redundant it's so overdone in the natural world. Flowers are more beautiful than they have to be. You know, the shimmer on water, does it really have to be that beautiful? But it is. You know, here's this abundance. So I just I had this phrase in my mind, redundant beauty. Redundant beauty. Every willow leaf, aching into green from its crimson stem, offers another lovely imperfection 
Among these millions along the round stone bank, dressing clear streams that are built of rain seeds, all of like mind, flowing so the water knife may cut through mountains and whittle sand pebbles the ants raise into their glittering pyramid studded with blue flowers so microscopic they bring me stunned to my knees to whisper, holy, holy, holy. Why this profligate redundancy of beauties? Everywhere I turn, the old leaf gone to lace, the first sprout small as a comma, the seed hurls toward the sky. Birdsong, rain glisten, snail whirl, butterfly unfurling her spiral tongue. It must be a kind of merciless democracy of beauties voting for our attention. Every child open-mouthed in wonder. To not see this is to die a little. To not hear, not touch, is to be tyrannized. To not defend is to be complicit with sorrow, with fear, in betrayal of earth. I say, send your pleasure hungry forth to be stunned by every leaf from the crimson wand of willow aching green. And to finish up, I'm the warm-up band for Jane. It's something I had a little help with. Um, Abraham Lincoln and I wrote this piece. Um, <laughs> because I read that, you know, when he was troubled by the state of the world, there was this big sycamore tree outside the White House, and he would climb up into the tree to think. I want someone like that leading the ship of state. Uh, so this is called Abe and I. And you'll, you may see how he helped me. Four score and seven years from now, our descendants will inherit on this continent an older earth conceived in diversity and dedicated to the recognition that all creatures live as one. Now we are engaged in a great struggle, testing whether this creation, so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met in a great community for that struggle. We have come to dedicate a portion of our grief as a final resting place for those creatures who gave their lives departing from this creation. It is fitting and proper that we should do this. In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this creation. The desperate creatures, neglected children, vibrant cultures, and local ways of being, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The whole earth will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what we now choose to do. It is for us the living, rather to be dedicated to the unfinished work which they who struggled and lost here have thus far so painfully clarified. 
It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that these tattered beauties, we take increased devotion to the cause for which they lost their last full measure of living witness and of song that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not be joined by an endless parade of others long in splendor, suddenly gone, that this whole earth will have a new birth in welcome to its own, and that reconciliation of all creatures, by all creatures, for all creatures, shall not perish from the earth. Thank you. Jane Hirschfield took the stage next. Jane's work expresses long-standing interest in science and environment and explores poetry as an instrument for investigation and a mode of perception. I know for me, one of the difficult things in my own life in wanting to add one tiny decibel to the general clamor for change in certain directions is um, one often feels useless. We do it anyhow, but we feel what, you know, how can this possibly? And so this poem has in the back of its mind uh, the idea of, remember when we all first heard about the butterfly effect? So that was in the back of my mind when I wrote this. It has the modest title, Changing Everything. <laughs> I was walking again in the woods a yellow light was sifting all I saw. Willfully, with a cold heart, I took a stick, lifted it to the opposite side of the path. There, I said to myself, that's done now. Brushing one hand against the other to clean them of the tiny fragments of bark. So this next poem is a much more recent poem and more overtly activist. It was written on the fifth day of the current administration. That was the day many of you will remember that the White House took all information about climate change off their website and ordered every scientist who was federally funded to stop talking about their work in public unless it was properly vetted. One team of scientists in the Badlands began tweeting facts, and they were having to do it on their private accounts. So I wrote this poem by the end of that day when the news came out, and I sent it to a couple of friends, scientists, and they sent it to friends, and they sent it to friends, and not that many months later, I was reading it on the Washington Mall at the first March for Science to something like 50,000 people, which is not anything I ever expected to see in this life. On the fifth day. On the fifth day, the scientists who studied the rivers were forbidden to speak or to study the rivers. The scientists who studied the air were told not to speak of the air, and the ones who worked for the farmers were silenced, and the ones who worked for the bees. Someone from deep in the Badlands began posting facts. The facts were told not to speak and were taken away. The facts, surprised to be taken, were silent. Now it was only the rivers that spoke of the rivers, and only the wind that spoke of the bees. 
while the unpausing factual buds of the fruit trees continued to move toward their fruit. The silence spoke loudly of silence, and the rivers kept speaking of rivers, of boulders, and air. Bound to gravity, earless and tongueless, the untested rivers kept speaking. Bus drivers, shelf stalkers, code writers, machinists, accountants, lab techs, cellists kept speaking. They spoke the fifth day of silence. So my sense is that the things we love to work for the most are the things which matter more than we do. And so I wanted to bring in a poem tonight that touches on those moments when the very self vanishes before and inside of experiences of the large. Um, and, you know, we all have such moments, I believe. I don't think there's a human being on earth who hasn't at some point. And even when it is the slenderest of memories, I think that experience continues to sustain us as we go forward. Um, they change the scales of existence. Three times my life has opened. Three times my life has opened. Once into darkness and rain. Once into what the body carries at all times within it and starts to remember each time it enters the act of love. Once to the fire that holds all. These three were not different. You will recognize what I am saying, or you will not. But outside my window all day, a maple has stepped from her leaves like a woman in love with winter, dropping the colored silks. Neither are we different in what we know. There is a door. It opens. Then it is closed. But a slip of light stays like a scrap of unreadable paper left on the floor or the one red leaf the snow releases in March. Thinking about the activism aspect of our program, I have done something for the first two years after the inauguration, I took some action every day, you know, usually feeling it was futile. And then after two years, I took a little break, and now I'm starting up again. But it is easy when we engage in these things to feel certainty and surety and that we're on the side of the right. And I have long felt that one of the most frightening forces in human lives and cultures is certainty. Because when people are really certain is when they will do the most terrible things. And so I am a great believer in self-skepticism and doubt and uncertainty and questioning. So this is a poem that speaks about that. Against certainty. There is something out in the dark that wants to correct us. Each time I think this, it answers that. Answers hard in the heart grammar's strictness. If I then say that, it too is taken away. Between certainty and the real, an ancient enmity 
When the cat waits in the path hedge, no cell of her body is not waiting. This is how she is able so completely to disappear. I would like to enter the silence portion, as she does, to live amid the great vanishing as a cat must live, one shadow fully at ease inside another. Big thanks to Kim Stafford and Jane Hirschfield for sharing their poetry with us. We now welcome Kaya Farrell-Smith and Kevin Gorman to the stage for a moderated panel discussion. Kaya Farrell-Smith is a contemporary Klamath Modoc visual artist who focuses on channeling research through a creative flow of experimentation and artistic playfulness rooted in indigenous aesthetics and abstract formalism. She is a co-director for Signal Fire Artist Residency Program, which brings artists into natural areas to inspire their art and help them to advocate for these places. Kevin Gorman is the executive director of Friends of Columbia River Gorge and also heads its land trust. Now that we have our full panel convened, I'd like to toss out to, to all of you, but especially Kevin and Kayla, who are, are just joining us, can we all be a seed for regeneration, for growth, for action? How can art for those of you who consider yourselves artists and for many of us who don't, help save us? Here's Kaia Farrell-Smith. I work at an artist residency, Signal Fire. Um, I've also worked with uh, groups called Journeys in Creativity, which is an art camp for native youth age 15 to 19. Uh, I've mentored and taught with that camp, and I've done a lot of mentorship and work with youth through Caldera artist camps and uh, a lot of other programs. And so I actually think, yes, we, um, and at Signal Fire, part of our mission statement is that we are agents of change. And I think really um, having opportunities for people to learn how to express themselves and communicate with one another through creative practices and creative making is incredibly important. It's a part of a healing process as, as well as an educational, uh, educational model. So a part of my teaching philosophy has always been about an intergenerational teaching model. And so I've taught, in classes, I've taught classes up at Portland State University in the Indigenous Nation Studies. And so when I, I, I put together this curriculum called Decolonizing Through Contemporary Indigenous Art and really looking at like decolonizing uh, practice and theory and how do we put that into action and so when you know through my research and study and um, just working as a, as a living you know working artist I've met a, I just I'm so impressed with contemporary indigenous artists their practices and how they're putting that theory into practice and whether that's through let's say basket weavers or birch bark biting you know you're connected these indigenous artists are connected to land they're connected to place and that the materials and protecting the materials and the harvest is so vitally important and so with basket weavers you know you have to go out into the land and you need to have healthy waterways to harvest tule and to harvest cattail and um, you, you're very intimate and when you harvest those materials and how you you know app, you know how that is now applicable to a creative practice. And so, you know, whether it's through just, you know, expression, through drawing, mark making, um, sitting and weaving baskets together, you know, a lot of these indigenous um, teaching models and art models are rooted in community. And it's rooted in not just an in individual practice, but we have to learn from one another and we can um, begin that healing in that way. And so really my practice after I got out of grad school was going back to the traditional indigenous arts and learning to study basket weaving, carving, harvest. And then I've been a, I, mean, I think I, my dad always had this joke, when did you get out? 
and everybody has like a different answer for it. <laughs> one guy would be like, oh, three weeks ago. <laughs> or like my partner was like, 24 years ago, like when we had met, when he came out, <laughs> birth. <laughs> um, so, you know, I really had that experience of like, when did you get out? Like that is, it's just a really important um, way of like framing your mentality and let's get out of this just individualism, this... Um, I just made a piece called Rugged Individualism, and like we need to like be talking to one another and building you know, relationships, and that's the root of it. And we don't need to be artists, but we can start just to communicate. So whether artists or not, you would say if to serve as a seed, you have to look to the roots in a way? Definitely, yes. For you, Kevin, how do you see the usefulness of art for the goals that you have at Friends of Oregon and the conservation movement in general? You know, we've talked a lot about beauty tonight. One of the words, in addition to beauty, that we talk about a lot is wonder. Because beauty is sort of what you see out there, but wonder is how you feel. Mm -hmm. And as we try to move people and move their hearts and their heads, art, as much as anything, helps move that along, whether it's photography, whether it's the written word, etc. And I was thinking a little bit, going back to the seed comment, I was thinking about what that means when I think about our organization. And you know, many people come to our organization because they want to know about certain hikes. They want to know certain things, and it's kind of what they want. And at some point where there's a selfish reason why you're doing this, I want to save this for myself, and at some point it turns. And it stops being about, well, I want this, but you're seeing that there's a higher thing and there's a higher purpose to go out there and really protect this. And you need to protect it for future generations. You need to protect it because, frankly, it's just the right thing to do. And to me, that's when the seed takes off. I think our society keeps the seed as dormant as possible. And even a lot of our recreation culture keeps the seed as dormant as possible. And it takes something, in some ways the recreation and such is the fertilizer, but it doesn't quite get the seed going. And once the seed turns, all of a sudden it becomes activism and it becomes doing something for a higher purpose beyond yourself and your favorite hiking spot, etc. That, that notion of purpose reminds me of the piece you read, Kim, and, and that reconfiguring of the Gettysburg Address. It's really, really magnificent. And it also reminds me of something I read in a little research uh, on you, Jane, where you had written, to be an activist on behalf of the non-human world requires a decentering of our human lives as the most important thing a perspective about the importance of our own stories in the larger realms of existence. And I'm seeing a little connection between you seeing the, the selflessness of purpose that comes once one enters into these issues or just into these places more fully. Would you call this an intersectionality of the natural world? And is that a concept that you think is worth promoting? Gosh, a word that comes more naturally to my tongue is interconnection and that all things are interconnected inextricably. I mean, one of the themes we've heard tonight, we heard the seed theme, we've heard a relationship theme. And I love that you brought up wonder. Awe is a word that I think by definition, awe must be extremely rare in our lives because it wouldn't be so awesome if it were quotidian and daily. And yet, art for me is one of the technologies we have developed 
to rinse our eyes of narrow and ego-centered seeing. And so in many ways, rather than intersectionality has such a precisely political meaning now that I think of it as a very human word. And what I hear you asking me about is something that is beyond our human realms and names, perhaps. I'm a word person and what I want most in the world is to be struck dumb by awe. And my job is to express what comes through my life and my psyche and my tongue. And yet, I am happiest in the moments when I don't feel like I have any of them. I have a whole string of poems in my last book and in my next book with titles that begin my, you know, my this, my that, my that. And they're all about not my. They're all about the fluidity of the boundary between self and other. And I think that's the basic of ethics. It's the basic of do unto others as you would have done unto you. It is the basics of treating the land with respect. It is the basics of honoring the ancestors, the elders, our neighbors, is to understand that our skin isn't so solid. It isn't solid at all. These notions of fluidity and interconnectedness, is this at the heart of something I have seen you have, have spoken and written about, the term eco-poetics? I love the fact that the etymology of ecology and ecos is home. A Chinese Taoist woman poet, Yuxuan Qi, wrote a beautiful poem in which she described, everywhere the wind carries me is home. And I think if we feel home in everything our eyes land on, every surface our feet walk on, we will treat it the way it deserves to be treated. So sure, eco-poetics, the poetics of our own household. Do you see art as a conduit between nature and politics? Should it serve as that or should it not? Well, I'm thinking of something the English writer Robert McFarlane said that, and this has sort of become my guidance system, a landscape that has not been evocatively described becomes easier to destroy. So to, with words, make a landscape visible, make it have a vote, make it be part of a democracy of lives, I think is the, the wor work of the artist to foreground the place. And I'm struck, as I'm hearing Jane talk about being struck dumb, I'm remembering in Bhutan seeing a prayer put onto a prayer flag, and the idea is then the wind carries the prayer to all sentient beings. But then as the, the flag begins to fray, and the words are literally sent out into the world, they become the dust of the landscape. It's as if the words then become the land. A friend of mine said, we have two things. We have a vote and we have a voice. And the vote is very important, but it's finite. It can, can be counted. But the voice can grow, can sing, can speak in different languages of understanding. So I think each of us is called to use the vote of our voice to advocate and testify for places. So uh, here you both talking to some degree about art as a sort of translation, interpretation of nature for maybe a denatured modern audience. Would you agree that it can serve as that? And I, I also wonder if, if we take places not just as topography or geography as the physical thing, but the culture that has been there 
that such a, a concept could, could apply to what you're trying to do with your work? Yeah, at Signal Fire, we work, like our, our mission and our goal is to bring artists and activists out into these incredible places. And so we lead backpacking trips, we go camping, we go hiking, we do month-long trips with students. We have alternative outdoor educational models. And the whole idea is that if we bring these people out, these creative agitators or agents of change, that they will then become advocates for those places. So for me personally, I'm indigenous to this place, to this land. I've lived here my whole life. I've gone camping. But as an artist and creative, it wasn't really until I had that experience with Signal Fire that it really changed my life. And it was the curriculum and the content that the organization put together. And so we curate readers for every single trip. Our guides work very closely together to design different games and different curatorial practices out in in the places that we visit. We have writers and um, we have artists of all different filmmakers, experimental filmmakers. So the, the work that comes out, not necessarily directly, but it's inspired by these places, is just, it's very, very powerful. And the camaraderie that's built, the community and the network that is built, I think the power is that we talk also, it's not rec creation. If you're talking about words, it's, it's of everything. It's that interconnectedness, um, which of course is inherent in indigenous philosophy and epistemology. And so that, I'm working on ways to share that with participants. So I design an all indigenous backpacking trip. It's really about getting indigenous people who are trapped in either reservation or urban settings due to settler colonialism and having to be able to survive. You're trapped in the urban jungle. And so Signal Fire, we're also bringing people back out and reconnecting them to their ancestral homeland. There's the political, too. I mean, when I say political, I mean, we're fighting a pipeline right now in southern Oregon, Jordan Cove. It's a natural frack gas, natural gas pipeline, but it's all methane. It's um, in Jordan Cove, the export terminal in Coos Bay would be the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Oregon. So we're all talking about climate chaos. I don't even call it climate change. Climate chaos, climate disaster. This is the worst thing for our state. For the Pacific Northwest, $10 million a month is what we're fighting in propaganda. This pipeline would be going under 485 waterways in southern Oregon, the Klamath, the Rogue, the Umpqua, and the Coos Rivers. And then the export terminal in Coos Bay would be the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Oregon. It would also be a firebomb in its tsunami zone. And they would have to dredge the bay to be able to bring these big vessels in that are the size of three football fields. Threatening that amount of waterways in southern Oregon is insane. So come visit Signal Fire's website. There's also a website called NoLNGExports.com. And Rogue Climate is another great place to get information on how to become active. There's some activism for you. (laughs) Thank you. Now it's time for some questions from the audience. So if people couldn't hear it, is the daily practice of art and the ideology of it something that these folks want to speak to, if there is a division between those? I have a phrase. A number of us have been using the phrase, speak beauty to power, to engage those deciding things like a pipeline with a song, with humor, with a story, with a family tradition, rather than bullet points or manifestos seek relationship and just the phrase speak beauty to power helps me yeah i would echo that a few days ago i had to go down to salem and speak before the ways and means subcommittee of natural resources about the columbia river gorge commission budget and i had a few minutes to speak and as i did and as others had been speaking the co-chair could 
barely keep her eyes open. Everybody on this panel were just incredibly bored, and afterwards I thought, I should have just sang a show tune. You know, I should have just done something. But that's the thing. I think I would have been much better off to grab one of these two's poetry and just deliver it and just wake them up. I'm always trying to think about how art can intersect. And that was a great example where I stepped into it and just simply played their game and was no more for the better as a result of it. And I think that's the thing. I think we have to be creatively, humorously, congenially, creatively disruptive. That was a good lesson for me this past week. It's just, it's the same old song and dance, and if you deliver that to them, you can't expect anything to change. I happened to, to watch a, a documentary about um, 19th century abolitionists recently, and in which they talked about the the huge sea change in the abolition movement from Harriet Beecher Stowe writing, writing Uncle Tom's Cabin to all of the, the broadsides, the appeals to moral suasion to, to try to meet the issue around the, the goodness of America's Christian souls didn't work. That it was a direct appeal, an engagement with emotion that changed thousands upon thousands of people's view of, of that issue and maybe maybe silent spring in some sense somewhat more scientific and rational was was that piece but perhaps we need something that's a little uh, artwork that's a little bit more um, directly engaging of our emotions. Personally learned a lot going out to Standing Rock and working in the art tent um, and really getting to learn like how do we create, wh where does that beauty come in and where does the language come in? We do a lot of the creative part too, but the political part, you need both. You need to have the facts and you need to be able to speak and deliver the facts and the reality of what we're going to face if we stay silent, which is therefore complicit. Time for another question from the audience. So that question, not about being struck dumb, but about being awoken to rage, passion perhaps, instead of wonder. You know, it's an impossible question because one could just list an encyclopedia worth of books and influences. Forgive me, I'm going to take my half second and make a different point. The thought which has been in my mind is part of our jobs as artists, activists, is every great change of consciousness and awareness has happened when something invisible becomes visible and something unheard enters into the realm of voices. And so I want to touch for a moment on the other side of our overt activism and speak for the interior life, the imaginative exploration, the thing that you don't know whether it's going to have any effect in the world or not. For example, sitting down in meditation is not an overt activism, and yet it is a taproot from which a different way of being in the world can come. I've been thinking of the way light extends on both sides of the visible spectrum, past what we can see. There are sounds so low we can't even feel them rumbling under our feet, but they change the world also. So I just want to feel a kind of broadening of our definitions of what is art's work, what is activism. Surely any increase of awareness and compassion and permeability to one another 
that already is activism. And we don't know what will change another human being. We don't know what will change us. Your question, a book didn't come to mind, but a moment came to mind when I was out at Warm Springs one time for the Root Feast. And the people, my people, had sent to the desert, feasted me for hours. Music, dancing, drumming, speeches, and then this bounty of food. And I was so shamed, I was so humbled. I went around asking, can I contribute? Is there a way I can give back? And no one would make eye contact with me. And finally an old woman looked at me and she said, you want to contribute? Yes, where can I do that? You will find a way. <laughs> that was it for me. And I think each of us has to answer that question with our lives. You will find a way. That's the end of our event, Conversation in Verse, authors, artists, and activists on protecting the landscapes we love. Thanks for listening and for whatever ways you found to contribute. We'd love to hear from you and hope you join us for another episode of Soundscapes. Until then, here's to understanding that our skin isn't so solid after all.